Welcome to SpexCast, the podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and this is part two of our discussion on recent events in the space industry. In this episode, TJ, Drew, and I react to the launch of SpaceX's new rocket, Falcon Heavy. We recorded this on February 7th, the day after the launch, and it was kind of a last minute thing. We just threw it together and had to talk about it. So we recorded it over Google Hangouts. We're all using different microphones. Some of us are using laptops. And you'll notice the audio quality isn't the greatest. I hope you understand and we really just love getting together and talking about space. If you'd like to participate in the discussion, reach out to us on Twitter at RITSpecs. That's R-I-T-S-P-E-X. Uh, we're also on Facebook slash RITSpecs. And you can email us at specscast at gmail.com. In this episode, we only really talk about Falcon Heavy. For other recent events, you can also download our other episode, which released at the same time as this one. Hope you enjoy. Thanks. Okay. So, um, this is going to be addendum to the other episode. Um, We're recording about a week after the last time we got together. Because Falcon Heavy just freaking launched off the launch pad yesterday. Um, <laughs> uh, needless to say, we're all very excited. And this is our kind of reactions and um, to the launch, how it went, the payload riding on top, and um, discussion of the insights we got to some of the answers Elon um, responded to, or to the answers to some of the questions Elon responded to at the subsequent press conference. So, oh my god, I just have to get that out of the way. Um, very impressed with the level of success of Falcon Heavy. Everything seemed, up until, uh, everything during Ascent was like flawless. Um, obviously, uh, Falcon Heavy, three Falcon 9s modified, you know, for the loads and stuff. Go up, boosters separate midair, come back to la- the launch pad. The center core goes on for a little bit, uh, made an attempt to land out at sea, and then the second stage carried Elon's um, Midnight Cherry Tesla Roadster with a little mannequin inside wearing a spacesuit out to heliocentric orbit uh, that intersected Mars's orbit. Um, everybody knows that, I think, especially everyone listening to this podcast. If you haven't watched the video, it is worth watching SpaceX's live stream. Um, Oh my god. Yeah, the launch was super exciting. Uh, we're across three separate time zones now, which was uh, it's always a fun time to record. But it was the middle of the day, and my office is, you know, a kind of a younger tech demographic. And our entire office stopped working, sat down in front of our TV, and we watched the whole 30-minute uh, live stream fixated uh, during the launch. Uh, and then once they had the live stream from the payload, we put that on in the background uh, and finished up the rest of our day. So it was definitely uh, a highlight of, definitely a highlight of my week. Uh, and for the 1.5 million people who were streaming it uh, live on YouTube, and I've seen numbers of 100,000 plus at, uh, who were there in person in Cape Canaveral, uh, which might even be higher depending on how close people got. So definitely an amazing event that's going to have shockwaves, literally and figuratively, uh, 
in the space launch industry for the coming weeks, months, and definitely uh, looking forward years into the future. There's even a moment in there where there was a camera feed for the descent of all three boosters, and you could see them all approaching the Earth at the same time. Well, that live stream was recorded and is on YouTube under the SpaceX YouTube channel, uh, and just recently they edited the video to include the footage from the uh, I think south side booster, which was missing during the actual live stream, so that you can see them both coming back in, which went on their re-entry, they look pretty much identical until they're landing at the pads, where you can then see the two different pads. It's so cool! Yeah, in the post-launch uh, press conference, Elon Musk uh, was talking about a space race, and how space races are exciting. So one of the reporters asked if he was going to be competing with Crew Origin, Jeff Bezos, but he kind of dodged that question. Uh, but still, we, he, it seems like he's expecting some sort of space race to be coming. Um, Falcon Heavy looks like a good contender. Jeff Bezos just responded to your tweet uh, congratulating you on your launch today. Uh, you just mentioned a minute ago that uh, we need a new space race. I'm just curious uh, if you see yourself in a race with Blue Origin. What was the first part of the question? <laughs> Expertly dodged that one. For sure. Firstly, we're talking about the launch, right? So I was most, the point of the Falcon Heavy launch that worried me the most as, you know, an observer and someone, a space nerd in the know, was the booster separation. Um, they're only held on by, you know, a couple hinges at the top and the bottom. And after the 18... Merlin 1D engines turn off. They just kind of like were pushed out by these arms at the top of the core stage and fall away very gracefully. I was sure in my head that, you know, like that's like the one thing that you can't really, you can't really test on the ground. And it's also something that couldn't be tested on a Falcon 9. So I was like, you know, if anything were to go wrong, it would either be some random thing that they couldn't have avoided or an issue with the pusher arms for those booster booster stages, um, but yeah, it worked out. And and I watched, I rewound the video and watched this multiple times to kind of see what was going on. And it looked like, like kind of like um, uh, well, the the joint on a trailer. If you were to tow something, is what it looked like. So the little arms holding the boosters on were on pistons. And the pistons fired, and I'm guessing something at the other end unlatched, um, and just kind of like let go of this ball joint or whatever it is, um, and then folded up for aerodynamic reasons. But it, it you know, the hats off to the engineers who designed that because you know it looked very simple and elegant and worked. Yeah, there's definitely uh, an interesting mechanism, and they have something like eight of those pneumatic pushers so there's four on each side and in order to have a clean separation all eight have to apply force equally relative to each other to prevent any torques or rotations so that's definitely a big stress point for me obviously takeoff was another big one so successful ignition and clearing the <laughs> tower i uh during the launch was like they clear the tower, thank God. If it blows up now, it won't be that big of a disaster. Um, then obviously we got to Max Q. Uh, Falcon Heavy is definitely a get-up-and-go rocket, so uh, 
Definitely got going pretty quickly there. Uh, managed to go through that. Then we had separation, which was clean. And at that point, I think a lot of the stress kind of went away because you we've seen single stick Falcon nines, you know, have stage separation and payload deployment and all that. So it's not as unknown territory, but obviously the center core is completely different design internally um, and didn't quite make it back down. But uh, definitely the first two, two and a half minutes uh, was definitely the big edge of the seat moment for me. So uh, let's talk about the core stage for a little bit. It's not a t- it's not a typical Falcon 9. The two side boosters had already flown once before as Falcon 9s. The center one is reinforced as take more loads. Um, it has, you know, some other modifications. But was it really that oh, much yeah. different from the side boosters? Um, um, one thing we haven't explicitly said yet is that it crashed. <laughs> it was supposed to land on the drone ship out at sea. And uh, something happened... Uh, I think, TJ, you have some information on this, of what actually caused the failure, but it didn't quite make it to do its suicide burn and went splat into the ocean at 300 miles per hour. So let's talk about what, what went wrong and maybe why that stage was different than your typical Falcon 9 launch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so during the uh, launch sequence, uh, side boosters detached, the center core detached in the second stage, and pretty straightforward uh downrange landing for a Falcon 9 at that point, except you have a higher starting velocity. So yeah, okay, you're gonna be going faster. SpaceX has tested high speed reentries on a lot of their GTO missions. Uh you have a lot of those videos where the grid fins light on fire. And this was using the old original aluminum grid fins, not the new titanium grid fins that the side cores were using, which we'll get to in a little bit. But during the launch, uh the feet cut out on the drone ship, which is not unexpected. It happens, unfortunately. Uh, and it turned back on. There's a bunch of dust and smoke, uh, which kind of in this case didn't make it. And the host uh, very graciously would not confirm nor deny at the time. Uh, but several hours later at the post-launch press conference, obviously that was a big question because we still hadn't heard anything about the result of the landing. And so Elon uh, had said that the telemetry they got and their initial hypothesis, this might change, but uh, it seemed like they ran out of TEA, TEB. The center core uh, obviously didn't land on the drone ship, but we were showing that. Um, and um, I think we were looking at the issue, but I think it, it, uh, it, it didn't have enough propellant to relight the, um, all three engines. Uh, sorry, enough uh, for something called TTAP, triathlon, lumen triathlon boron that's used to light the engines. So. It, um, I believe that the center one lit, I believe, and the outer two did not. Um, and that was not enough to slow the stage down. Apparently it hit the water at 300 miles an hour um, and uh, took out two of the engines on the drive ship. T-tab. That's actually uh, triethyl boron and triethyl aluminum, which is a combination fluid that is used to ignite the engines. So kind of go back to a launch when you have nine Merlin engines or 27 Merlin engines, there's tanks on the pad that have TEA, TAB that gets injected to ignite the engines before liftoff. And for recovery operations, 
the three center engines have an onboard supply and they're plumbed to that supply so they can reignite for the reentry burn and landing burn. So we've done 20 something landings so far uh, and ignition really hasn't been an issue on most of those. Uh, however, apparently there was not enough of this fluid to ignite all three engines. And as you can see in the launch video, every booster core was using, at least at some point, a three-engine re-entry or landing bridge. That has a much higher thrust, which means it's more efficient acceleration, you're doing less gravity losses, so you waste less fuel for recovery. However, because they didn't ignite all three engines for the center core, they only had one, they weren't expecting that, they weren't calculating for that, one engine couldn't slow it down quick enough, it hit the drone ship at apparently 300 miles an hour, took out half of the barge uh, engine pods. There's the thruster pods and shipping containers on each of the corners, took out two of those, and probably a good deal of uh, antennas and cameras. So if any cameras survived, we might be getting footage in the next couple of days or weeks. Right. I think um, we'll probably be getting footage from like a helicopter or a plane or something like we've seen before. But um, so was this a, a miscalculation engineering wise or is this a mechanical failure like the computer didn't do something right or the engines didn't ignite or you know what they just didn't anticipate using that much TTAP like is this a design error or implementation at this point we have no idea uh, you would assume that they've done return to launch site and ASDS landings so many times with the same number of engines that they would have enough T of this ignition fluid for three engines. Um, so if they didn't put enough in, that would be very surprising uh, because it shouldn't be a situation where uh, you run out, right? Because you just need a very brief contact to start the ignition and then it's self-sustaining with the fuel and oxidizer. So being a calculated mistake this seems very unlikely. It might be, but we just don't know. Um, to make a complete out-of-the-blue guess, pure speculation, because there's no way to back this up, uh, potentially there was a leak in the plumbing between the internal store of the liquid and the engines. That might explain why there was only enough for one. Uh, who knows? But uh, hopefully, you know, if it hit the drone ship, there might be pieces or components they can look at uh, that helps them with this. And obviously... Uh, the have much finer telemetry from the vehicle they can look at. But it just seems like out of every landing failure we've seen, this is very unusual and it hasn't it has never been an issue on any other uh, landing before. We've had centripetal uh, spinning of the fuel to starve the engines. We've had locked landing legs. We've had just running out of fuel, but running out of igniter fluid, yeah, just very strange. Another thing uh, that uh, I'll put in a clip here, Elon made a comment that said if he had to pick one booster to explode or or not return, he would have picked the one the center stage because um, he was very happy that the two ones that returned to launch site were the ones that made it. Um, yeah, so that's a, the center core is a special build. The side boosters, we can reuse existing Falcon 9s, but we need to just replace the interstage with a with a nose cone. 
um, and, um, and it needs to use the, uh, the, the upgraded titanium grid fins, which are sweet. Those worked out real well. In fact, I'm glad we got the, the side boosters back because they had the titanium grid fins and the center core didn't. So if I was to pick anyone, I would have picked the side boosters. I, I'd pick the center core to explode. Um, so, if so, that would be like the least, uh, yeah. Because those friggin' grid fins are, <laughs> they're, they're super expensive and, and awesome, but they, the production rate on them is slow. We need, we need them back. That, like that, was, that was the most important thing to recover were those grid fins. And I wanted to bring this question to you guys because I couldn't answer it myself, but why? The center core is the one that had the most modifications. So why would he be okay with losing that one? Wouldn't he want to recover the ones the the one that's new so he, they can validate it? Yeah, so this is a really uh complicated situation. Um because SpaceX is probably the worst company when it comes to naming naming things and naming their rockets in any consistent way. Um, so we've had several versions of Falcon 9 with different public names, but we've had Falcon 9 version 1.2 or 1.2 full thrust for a while. That was the reusable one. But internally, there's been several blocks of that. And so the ones that started landing and being reused are block threes. The one outside Hawthorne is a block three. And the way they determine blocks is by uh, grouping modifications of parts into block lists. So traditionally, say if you're doing defense contracting for fighters, you take 5,000 new parts out of a 100,000 part airplane that are new. These changes are going to be rolled into block 3. And so when we put a shot of block 3 airplane, it has those new parts. And a block 4 would change another five or 10,000 parts etc etc however because falcon 9 is in in spacex dna to consistently iterate changes that were for block 3 block 4 and now block 5 have been rolled out without all the changes of their corresponding blocks so the two cores that were the side boosters for block 3s would have some components that have been replaced or there are block 4 parts and the center core is a weird combo of block three and block four parts and all the specific things designed for Falcon Heavy. So this, the boosters, the strength and octaweb internal structure, and all of those things. This Falcon Heavy booster, center core, is actually going to be a one-off. If they would have recovered it, A, because of historical value, and B, because it's a weird hodgepodge of components, would not have flown again. But that, that's the thing. We weren't going to reuse the set, that, that center core anyway, um, uh, or, or the two side boosters. So side boosters, we'll figure out some place to put them. But since they're not uh, block five or version five, uh, we weren't planning on reusing any of the, the cores. I went, out, I went out to the landing zone, took a look at the side boosters. Um, they look in, in really good condition. So they're, they're both reflyable, uh, although, as I said, they're a combination of version three and version four. So we will, we're only going to be reflying really version five at, at this point. Uh, that that launches shortly, and that that'll be our mainstay. We'll we'll stick to version five for the Falcon architecture. We don't expect to have a version six. When SpaceX launches Block Five with all of the confirmed parts of Block Five, then those cores will be able to be more easily reused and will continue to fly. The side boosters, while they're Block Threes, and they're probably not going to fly again. They're going to be sent to be in display now. They do have the new titanium forged grid fits. 
and we'll get to why that is in this moment. But those parts are very, very expensive, and they're needed for the side boosters because a traditional Falcon 9 core has the interstate. There's a cylindrical. And that allows SpaceX to use the whole cylinder of the rocket as somewhat of an airfoil and use the grid fins to keep it at an angle of attack to somewhat fly it back to the landing site. But when you switch that cylindrical interstage to a nose cone, which is what they did for the side boosters, the entire aerodynamics of the vehicle changes and you don't have as much control authority to do that. So you need the much bigger, much more powerful, much more effective titanium grid fins to keep it in that same attitude. By recovering the side boosters, yeah, they're not going to fly again on commercial missions, but they can take those very expensive, very slow to produce grid fins off and reuse them for new Block 5 or Block 4 flights in the coming months. I see. Thanks for that explanation. That that really uh, makes sense. Um, yeah, it's a really complicated situation. Yeah, I was wondering uh, if, like, since the since the side boosters had reflown, that has implications. Like, if one of the this is their second flight, so if one of those boosters failed to land, then that would raise doubts in the reusable uh, regime here. But uh, I think that might have been at play as well. But well, TJ hit on the point that uh, Elon Musk brought up at the conference, which was that those expensive pieces were safe, whereas the part with the core didn't have those. Um, so if you were to lose it, that's what, that's the part you'd want to lose if you had to lose one. Um, I think there's also. Do we know why the center, why the center core didn't have titanium grid fence? Is it because it didn't need it because the interstage was there? Yeah. Okay. It's not required. The big fins help, but they're not required when you have them. So they don't fly it if, because they're so expensive that if they don't require it, they're not going to put it on there. They're expensive, but they're most likely production constrained because those are forged titanium parts. So that's a very expensive, very slow process to do. My other interpretation of why it would be good to save the two Falcon 9 boosters is that although these were block three or four and won't be flown again commercially, they um, once we get into block four or five, into block five really, uh, and we are flying those boosters, they can be, if they were to survive, they can be used for other Alpha 9 normal launches. Can side boosters be flown in between like can can they alternate? Like can it be So the heavy, logic heavy, system is Falcon Heavy center cores can be used as Falcon Heavy center cores or as single sticks. But Falcon Heavy side boosters can only be used as side boosters or as single sticks. You can't take a standard Falcon 9 or a Falcon Heavy side booster and convert it to a Falcon Heavy center core. Okay, but they individually can be flown as their role or single stick. Every single one can be flown also as a single stick. Yes. Interesting. Okay. One thing I want to talk about is the landing. So, uh, during the pre-launch press conference and some of the rumors was that SpaceX was going to stagger the landing of the two side core boosters. So... If you're going to 
you know, tell someone who is less informed about the launch, is like, yeah, they're going to launch, and the booster will come back, and it should come back within five, ten seconds of each other, and then the center core booster will land. Uh, that's not how it ended up happening. Uh, it ended up happening almost simultaneously. Uh, there was a one or two seconds in between. Um, and the reason for that is SpaceX tried to stagger them. You can see in the footage that they were, you know, had some separation. Uh, but you're actually pretty much fighting physics to separate these two because they're both launched at the same time. You're both trying to bring them back to the same point with the least amount of energy. And so if they both follow the most energy, uh, least energy intensive route to that point, they're going to return at pretty much the same exact time. And the reason to stagger them is to avoid interference between the two systems. So I, they, I believe they use radar altimeters, um, obviously communications thing, and having two uh, systems operate very closely to each other may cause interference. So that's one reason to stagger them. We wanted them to offset slightly just so that the radars didn't interfere. And uh, we actually wanted no communication between the, the two stages. They're both going to a point in absolute space. And uh, we're just worried that the radar reflection of one would be seen by the radar receiver of the other. Um, but no, it just that's just kind of how it happened. It's actually meant, meant to happen just like that. The difference between them, no matter what, they're going to be a little bit staggered because of differences in the atmospheric composition and tweaks the flight control systems are making. But yeah, I guess there's not much they can do there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for people who were actually in Florida, they got retreated to a wonderful quadruple sonic boom because you had two mm -hmm. boosters and because there's no interstage you have the uh, octaweb shockwave and the gridfin shockwave there's a great video of this by smarter every day um uh dustin salen has he has a sound clip that basically features the sound of these sonic booms so even if you're not in cape canaveral you can still listen to it now let's talk about the payload let's hear what elon had to say about it during the press conference well, I think it looks so ridiculous and impossible. I mean, it's kind of silly and fun, but I, I think, I think that's you know, silly fun things are important. Um, and normally, for a new rocket, you know, they'd launch like a block of concrete or something like that. I mean, that's so boring. <laughs> and uh, I think that's just the imagery of it is something that's going to get people excited around the world, and it's, it's still tripping me out. I mean, I'm tripping balls here. <laughs> but, we you know, we didn't really test any of those materials for, you know, is it space hardened or whatever, you know. So it just has the same seats that, like, a normal car has. It's just literally a normal car in space, which I kind of like the absurdity of that. Keith Cowing and NASA Watch. Other than the live webcam today, what is SpaceX going to do to interact with this community of t Tesla trackers once the car leaves orbit? Do you have a plan, or are you just going to kind of wait and see what bubbles up on the Internet and react to it? Um, we don't have a plan. No plan. <laughs> um, the battery is going to last about 12 hours from launch, roughly. Um, and um, after that, it's just going to be out there in deep space for maybe millions or billions of years. Who knows? This is Martin Avenue, and I'm with Reddit's R SpaceX community. I'd like to know about Starman's spacesuit. Is it sure. a production model? Is it instrumented yeah. and or pressurized? And what's holding his, what's holding him up? Well, there's a mannequin inside. <laughs> so it's just basically stuffed. But yeah, that is the actual production design. So the real one looks like just like that. that, that in fact, that's one of the qualification articles um, 
It's, it's a, that's, that's, real, that's the real deal. Like for Chris Gephardt. Inside the spacesuit, testing like its ability to nope. function. Nope, it's just nope. up there. Yeah, no, it definitely works though. You can just like jump in a, in a vacuum chamber with it. That's fine. Yeah, I, I. So, I think you guys know how I feel about this payload here a little bit. I talked about this back in our other conversation here, and I ended up writing an eight-page uh, manifesto on useful dummy payloads and argued that um, I'll post this to the blog, but. I think a dummy payload should be interesting, right? Um, as Elon says, I agree with him that a block of concrete is a waste of time and money and mass. But at the same time, you know, I have... I, I, I can't help feeling like launching this Tesla into space was a little bit of a waste. Uh, before I get into why, I'm just going to take a minute to say what's on it. We got the Roadster. It sits on a pedestal that's engraved with SpaceX's logo and the names of all 6,000 plus SpaceX employees. And there's also a vault under there that contains holographic disks that have something like 360 terabytes of storage capacity. Yeah, they call it the Ark. Which have uh, a bunch of... I, but it's got the uh, Foundation series by Isaac Asimov in it along with way more information about the general human culture. So it is the golden record of Voyager 1 and 2 on steroids. Exactly. So um, there's a little bit of that. It's And, I mean, there's the fun stuff, too. There's a little Hot Wheels version of the Roadster with a little spaceman sitting inside of it. There's the mannequin dressed in the qualification SpaceX flight suit. Um, and some cameras on board that streamed footage of the Tesla on its interplanetary flight for about 12 hours. Beautiful footage, and they live-streamed it. It was it was really remarkable. Um, and so, but, th but that's it, right? So they treated it like a monument, which it essentially will be for the next million or even billions of years, right? Floating through space. Uh, pretty much unchanging until the materials degrade or it gets hit by, you know, a foreign object. Um, but that's that's all it is. It's preserved. They treat it like a time capsule. They've got the golden record, um, which I thought was a very nice touch. They announced that during the live stream, um, which I thought was interesting. But there's no other real value to it besides it serving its purpose as a dummy mass. And if it exploded, it would be no deal. And when I think of dummy masses, and I'm thinking back to Saturn V um, with Project High Water, it, when they were testing, when NASA was testing the Saturn family of rockets, they wanted to test the first stage, so they gave it a put some dummy mass it in as upper stages. They literally filled second and third stage tanks with water. That is like one of the most basic mass simulators you can get. But after they launched the first stage, what they did was they released all the water into the atmosphere and NASA scientists learned, they, they studied how the ice formed in the upper atmosphere and learned new things about the ionosphere, uh, ice in, ice's behavior in space, you know, all from just water. Now, when you look at something like the Roadster as 
purely monumental, purely, you know, for posterity. The only science gained is some GoPro footage <laughs> and tracking it on its interplanetary flight to confirm Falcon Heavy did its job to deliver its payload into that orbit. I mean, I feel like there could have been at least a little bit more to be done without without any extra money, right? The, the, for the same amount of money they did to fit all these things, they could have invested in a little bit more stuff to get a little bit more science. Because going into space, especially in that kind of orbit, is not cheap, it's not done very often, and each time should be valued. And I won't get into Rocket Lab's Humanity Star. Um, we already got into that, and I wrote two more pages about why that is, you know, got <laughs> on some levels, even worse. Uh, I, I sympathize with scientists and stuff that have criticized SpaceX for this. On the other hand, and sorry, this is kind of, I'm, I'm almost off my soapbox here. Uh, Elon responded to this directly and he said, you got to have fun. Um, and that's one of the things that I think SpaceX really brings to the industry that it hasn't had in a, in a while. You don't have, um, you know, very serious, very, you know, everything is about science, about the calculations, about education and, and learning and everything has to be precise and nothing can go wrong. And SpaceX is like, you know, whatever, man, we're having fun with this. This is once in a lifetime thing. We've been waiting for this for so long. You know, we're going to enjoy the moment. And they do it by by having a towel in the in the glove box and a matchbox car and and just kind of having fun with it. And that's something that no one else is really doing right now. Um and that in itself does have value. So I'm not saying it th it's totally pointless. Uh but I don't know. I, I'm my feelings are mixed. I agree with you uh, in that when you're doing something like this, if you're going to spend the money, you may as well do something that you can benefit from. Now, something like high water, where you can get scientific benefit from, that would be the ideal case. But there is benefit to this in two regards. One is PR for SpaceX and arguably Tesla. Um, well, I mean, so they're they're having fun, and they're they're generating this talk about both companies. I'm sure that if you go search Google Analytics for SpaceX, Falcon Heavy, Tesla, Roadster, all of that's going to be massively increased in the next few days. I mean, it's a meme. It's a meme. So, like, Phil, so I fundamentally disagree on some of your points. <laughs> But I do agree okay. on other parts of your point. So, with regards to this mission, I think there's a couple things we have to understand. SpaceX is not NASA. I know, shot. that's really hard to get. <laughs> but SpaceX is an engineering organization and a production organization. Right? Those are their two goals. NASA is a scientific and research organization and production and engineering is all in the aid of their scientific goals, right? And so when you look at what the Falcon Heavy flight was, right? We're testing new hardware. We want to make sure that everything works, that it can get off the pad. And as they mentioned in the liftoff kind of uh, speech, 
Uh, this was the return to interplanetary missions for Pad 39A since the Apollo program. And now, yes, the roadster is not going to get that close to Mars, but it is going past Mars orbit out into the asteroid belt. But when you look at it, the mission goal, launch the rocket, and demonstrate that A, Falcon Heavy has uh, a long cruise ability of six hours between the second burn and the third burn, and two, it has the capability of sending substantial payloads to interplanetary targets, Mars and beyond. And with that, the mission and the payload are a huge success. Now, I agree with your last point that, you know, SpaceX is fun and it's a great PR move. It's great for Tesla and uh, SpaceX. What was it? But I just want to respond to Phil's point. Uh, that this is, he said this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which is why you were saying you know, it makes sense why they're having fun with this. But I think the point is this shouldn't be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's a once-in-a-lifetime in that this is the first. But this should become... The flight test the, is the once-in-a-lifetime thing, and they've been waiting. You know, it's it's It was basically mythical at this point until now. Yes, but the the scale of this should be... This should become so regular that a wasted mission shouldn't be too costly. And TJ I mean, brought the point that they're a commercial entity, so their point is to make money. Well, I mean, the, I I would flip that argument and say that, you know, it, if you think that way, then they should go out and try to refly the Falcon 9 that's sitting outside of Hawthorne right now. Well, you they, know, they have they didn't. cores just lying around and outside in parking lots. They've but I mean, instead of turning it into a monument, like it, it's it's special because it's the first one. Yeah. Uh, so. so to kind of go off Drew's point, uh, the important thing about demo missions is that they are extremely high risk. And Drew, or Phil, you brought up, well, what if they didn't spend any more money, but they focused on scientific objectives or payloads, or they let, uh, you didn't say this, but what if they let University CubeSat programs put uh, P-Pods on the second stage and give them a free flight? Yes, they could have do that, and they have extra capability to do that. But on a test mission, as soon as you add paying customers or external customers that put time and effort into the payload, you now, even in the, in the fine print, you say you have no obligation of putting the payload in space. You, you kind of do. Like Other organizations invested time, not into the rocket, but into the experiment. And as a launch provider, it's your job to put that into space. And so on a test flight, the reason you go with boilerplate, A, to reduce cost, but B, uh, if you have people invest time and energy into these experiments and you blow them up in, say, a fueling accident or within the first 10 minutes of flight, those people's hard work is gone. And so I can totally understand a point of view where, hey, this is about us, about our capabilities. We have a mission to do. We have objectives. Let's focus on us and not have, not have outside shareholders that might, hey, push us to go faster, or push us to cut corners, not have those obligations. Yeah, it takes the pressure off of everybody involved in the launch process. So, you know, yeah, there's... There's no added worries or concerns. And the follow-up to Drew, Phil, you mentioned that like this is the first mission. This is incredibly valuable to be sending something out into interplanetary space. I think uh, if you look at what SpaceX is doing, their whole goal as a company is to purposely devalue launches. Right? Their objective is to reduce the cost, increase the frequency. 
And so, yeah, it's like, oh, this is such a valuable opportunity. It's a shame that they missed, you know, sending up useful science or uh, extra chances of doing data. It's like, yeah, but this means that future missions are going to be dra dramatically cheaper and dramatically more uh, frequent. And by having a successful test, we've enabled that to happen down the line. So I, those are the points I you know, disagree with you on. But to kind of go back to, yeah, but like they had this opportunity to do cool stuff. The one thing that really jumped out to me, and I want to do a shout out to uh, the r slash SpaceX contributors who were at the press conference and the one who asked this question, uh, you had a spacesuit, a full production ready spacesuit uh, with a mannequin in a car in the vacuum space for 12 hours of telemetry. They didn't put any sensors in it. They didn't have any leak sensors. They didn't have any temperature sensors. That would have been a cool practical test of we're testing our spacesuit in outer space to see how it holds up to the environment. And they just didn't bother to do that. And so it was like, okay, like that's a very marginal bit of effort on, on SpaceX's part that does fit in with their goal as an engineering organization. It's like, this is a perfect practical test of that suit that they missed out on. It was like, I was a little disappointed in that. Also, kind of in a more general sense, uh, they had this excellent live stream of the vehicle uh, for up until the burn, and then I think about six hours after that, that was showing beautiful views of a humanoid-looking object in a car orbiting a planet that I think is an amazing PR tool that's going to be shared between millions and millions of people and inspire millions and millions of people, which I think is an amazing accomplishment in itself. Um, but after 12 hours, the stream ended. And on two things, it would have been nice if there was extra batteries or a solar panel or a way to extend that for as long as possible. Uh, and two, uh, because the time they launched and the trajectory they chose, while this roadster is going to Mars orbit and beyond out to the asteroid belt, it's not going to get anywhere really that close to Mars. And even in their render, they showed the car with Starman going visibly close to Mars. It would have been interesting if they could have chosen a more energy-intensive trajectory or, unfortunately, shift the launch date a bit so they could have done a free uh, return trajectory around Mars and with upgraded batteries, solar panels, etc., gotten shot shots of a human-made payload this ostentatious red sports car with <laughs> an astronaut with pictures of Mars uh, in the frame. Uh, I think that would have been like a slam dunk in PR. They've already done an oh amazing PR job. But again, they didn't do that. Uh, you can see that, you know, they included a lot of sentimental items to Elon and to SpaceX employees. But again, they didn't do any structural or material modifications to the roaster. They didn't uh, space grade material select seat materials for instance uh that you know it was really like we have this car let's you know get it so it's not going to explode on us but put some cameras put a dummy in it get everything going so it's interesting to see the trade-offs they made and you know we as fans and observers can say oh if they had gone you know an extra inch or in the case of scientific payloads an extra mile would have been even better but that doesn't take away from the amazing accomplishment that they have the largest, most powerful operational rocket right now for the cheapest cost per kilogram. Uh, and 
they sent a human car into orbit and beyond. I I wholeheartedly agree with you that having just a shot of even the tiniest speck of light being Mars in the background would have been, you know, as inspirational as Starman is now with Earth being in the background. Um, having Mars, in the, it, it would just no doubt be miles ahead of whatever it is now. Um, but yeah, I think part of me wonders if this is the last thing I'm going to say about it, but it, <laughs> Elon says this is the silliest thing they could think of. Part of me wonders like how long they it took to do this. I, I have a feeling, you know, completely unfounded speculation, but just a feeling that when tweet when Elon said, we're going to launch the Tesla, we're going to launch my car. That was the day that he thought of that idea. And then he kind of told everybody. And then everyone's like, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. Like I, that seems like Elon Musk to me, uh, something he would do. And that that's just a few weeks to get it all together. <laughs> so I don't think they had the time or really, you know, no pressure, carefree, fun thing to do. So hindsight's 2020, definitely a major accomplishment. And now you had a perfect segue way that I destroyed. Um, you had a perfect segue into talking about how this launch changes so much in the industry. Oh yeah, it's this is quite exciting. So with Falcon Heavy officially operational, uh, obviously STP is coming up later this year, which will be the second uh, and I believe final qualification flight for the Air Force to send uh, to compete and then send military satellites. But for all intents and purposes, we now have a fully operational super heavy lift 64 metric tons to lower orbit rocket that supposedly is going to be flying three or four times a year. Yeah, that's it's the most powerful rocket um, that can currently fly and with an unmatched flight rate and unmatched cost. Historically speaking, the reusable rockets kind of change things on a fundamental level where now we can kind of expect you know, minimum 20 flights from SpaceX a year. And they're shooting for double that. They're shooting for a flight every week or every day. Um, other launch providers have argued that, you know, we we can't fly as often. It's going to be a little pricier, but we'll get it. You can, we can guarantee mission success. And that's one thing they, other uh, SpaceX competitors argue here. But you can't just say, you know, Sorry, I can't. Fl- <laughs> you're you're gonna have to make your satellite lighter, but I can get it to orbit 100% of the time. Like that's, it, it changes the game on a fundamental level. Um, are there and the other super heavy lift rocket that's in progress is well besides SLS, which is a different well, story entirely. SLS is kind of the primary that's separate. Separate, separate um, conversation and category. Uh, New Glenn, right? Is New Glenn in or not New Glenn? Is it New, New Glenn, Glenn or Armstrong? In, New Glenn is the one they're building. Right. So Blue Origin, New Glenn will be more powerful than Falcon Heavy, I believe, right? I believe so. Or at least in the same ballpark. Um, 
but we don't know how close that is to being flight ready and uh, like right now if falcon heavy can fly once again this year huge uh advantage in terms of time huge head start and they're going to be gobbling up the market share i would assume right yeah so with new new glenn they have a payload to leo of 45 metric tons but that is assumed fully reusable. Not fully, but first stage reuse. With Falcon Heavy, that 64 metric tons is with all expendable. And projections for fully reusable, so two return to launch site boosters, one downrange booster, is roughly 30-ish metric tons. Uh, so Nuclein is going to be a more powerful rocket. Right. So... The the thing I'm struggling to understand here, um, and I'm I'm just thinking out loud with you right now, is is SpaceX comfortable with being like where they are right now in their development with Falcon Heavy, or are they sweating a little bit? And uh, same goes for the other launch providers. Where where does it stand? Like, are they? sitting pretty with a huge head start and not even worrying about it and focusing on getting block five out? Um, or should they be concerned f about being surpassed by other launchers? I don't know. I think they're going to continue development and keep launching Falcon Heavy. But Elon Musk made it clear in the press conference that they're gearing up towards ITS or BFR, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that's kind of where their focus is. They want to go really, really big, really, really soon. Yeah. So basically, sorry. Yeah. So uh, to answer the question of is SpaceX scared or is SpaceX, you know, sitting high and mighty? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I wouldn't say it's scared. I'd say that they're they're playing a different development game entirely. So they've mastered landing for stages, which we know is not a trivial thing to do. Uh, that development cycle for SpaceX took many years and a billion dollars. We know that they have Falcon Heavy, which took five years of moving the launch date back, half a billion dollars, something, I think three cancellation attempts. Uh, so they spent a lot of time, effort, and most important engineering hours, which is the key, developing the Falcon family. If you look at Falcon, Falcon Block 5, which we should see in April, once that happens, what SpaceX is saying publicly is like, look, that's going to be when Falcon, 5 is, or Falcon Block 5 is done. We're going to you know, start reusing 10 times uh, before refurbishment and then ideally 100 flights before having to retire a core, which is unimaginable at this point in time. Block 3 and 4 can only go two, two uh, reuse flights, three total flights before uh, they have to kind of shelve it. And so SpaceX already has that capability. They spend a lot of money, which means they're going to have to, they can't lower prices right now because they have to pay off those costs. With looking to Blue Origin, Blue Origin's looking at two to three years from now before they can do first flights, right? And SpaceX did do a lot of the innovators dilemma where they had to trailblaze, they spent a lot of money trying things out, and Blue Origin can fall in their footsteps a little bit, but it's still going to take a lot of engineering hours to solve that problem, and New Glenn can't reliably fly unless it has uh, first stage reuse, right? 
uh, that's going to dramatically change their costs. So that's in the traditional kind of realm. But if you look at Falcon Heavy, looking towards the moon and Halos to Mars and beyond, SpaceX is kind of gearing up to expand that envelope. And from the press conference, the amount of questions from reporters about Mars, Mars rockets, Mars missions, what's going on, and Elon's pre-willingness of, we might see a engineering model, a functional engineering model of a big Falcon spaceship flying before the end of next year, uh, if not the full life support and interior and whatnot. Uh, we might see that within a year and a half, two years. We might see the full booster plus spaceship making operational missions in three to four years, which is 2022. You can see that SpaceX is getting ready to kind of start that next sprint, right? They're, they're going for fully reuse, full reuse of every component. We're going to scale up, massively drop the cost, another order of magnitude, and we're going to go for those big, big targets, big contracts. So it's important to see SpaceX has already done one order of magnitude. You're going from 10 to 20,000 kilograms per, or 10 to 20,000 dollars per kilogram for something like the space shuttle and a lot of the commercial vehicles that we've been using for the past 20 years down to, with Falcon Heavy, around a thousand dollars per kilogram. BFR and the ITS, they want to get down to a hundred per kilogram. So that's a huge increase and dramatically changes what kind of payloads you're going to see. Yeah, um, but one of the challenges with, with scaling up like that is not everything scales the same. Uh, we can add the clip in here, but from the conference, Musk was saying that there are some factors when you scale up to the size of BFR that increase by a magnitude of 8, or um, 10 to the 8. To the 8. I think it was to the 8th, like, ex exponent, like exponent 8 rather than 10 to the 8th. That's how I took that. Yeah. Well, either it's way, in such a large obscene. magnitude, you don't see that. You don't see that anywhere else. Nothing else scales like that. I think it's pretty clear. Um, now that uh, hearing you, both of you, kind of discuss, uh, respond to my, my question there. Falcon Heavy was basically, they already invested a lot of money, and they're still, it still right now has a place in the market, lifting those things that an, ex an expendable Falcon 9 can't. But that's... Well, to be BFR fair, BFR is where it's at. The, right? the number of payloads that require an expendable Falcon 9 is getting less and less and less. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the GTO missions Falcon Heavy was supposed to fly got pushed down to Falcon 9 when it got stretched into 1.1. And now with 1.2 and full thrust, that limit keeps increasing. And as they improve the efficiency of recovery, they've been able to recover at higher velocities with less margin. Uh, the new grid fins help as well. And so that, that upper capability of Falcon 9 keeps increasing. Now, to be fair, that also increases the capability of Falcon Heavy proportionally. Um, but that means Falcon Heavy starts at, you know, Roadster to Mars and scales up to even bigger things. We can launch, I think, within five Falcon Heavy flights, the equivalent mass of the ISS for 1.5%. So ISS, roughly $100 billion, including modules and launch costs. Launching now with Falcon Heavy, launch costs will make up 0.5% of what 
the ISS cost to build. Mm-hmm. Like that is an obscene change in the the magnitude of costs involved. Right. Um, so the point I was going to make is that they've already invested some of the money. Falcon Heavy. I mean, you can't. We don't directly see right now a need for it. Like the like you said, the capability of Falcon Nine is increasing and whatever. But in the time between now and when BFR is ready to take payloads to space, um, Falcon Heavy will have some work to do. And I, so what, what I, the point I'm trying to make is that SpaceX is clearly ready to move on from Falcon um, and let it run its course as the workhorse and the revenue stream they need to invest in more complex development bigger scale development and you know all the uh painful space exploration lessons that they'll need to learn in order to make their big falcon spaceship and rocket combo so um yeah that that's all i'm trying to say is that falcon heavy great accomplishment good job guys but they're already looking way further down the road very looking a little further down the road, but I don't think it will disappear. There's always going to be some sort of market for it. There's always going to be some sort of market for something like the Falcon 9. But I think with New Glenn, uh, that is the only credible uh, competition they have that is preventing SpaceX from, by default, clo- uh, bankrupting every other launch provider. But yeah, so so right. where does this put the other launch providers? That that's the other part of the question that I want Fa- to with Falcon Heavy. That means that as long as SpaceX maintains reliability, which they haven't perfectly in the past, um, that means no launch provider other than very niche cases can compete on a performance, capability, or cost basis. The only uh, if you approach launch procurement logically, which it is not logical. The uh, only way a launch provider would receive a launch is through government support, which is what we see now. ULA gets a certain percentage of launches to assure access to space. They also get the ELC, uh, which is just a flat payment to ensure that capability. Air Aim Space gets funded by Airbus Group and the ESA to maintain a solid rocket booster production component for the European Defense Agency. ILS obviously benefits from Russian defense needs, and China is fully uh, publicly owned, serves the Chinese military and Chinese corporate interests uh, in a lot of ways. So uh, pretty much the only thing preventing SpaceX from competing for and winning pretty much every contract is political uh, impossibilities, Uh, which is fine. Like That's how... The, the space market works. Uh, but none of those agencies seem to have a solid plan. Arian 6 is going to be a drop from obscenely expensive, relatively, to Falcon 9-esque expenses levels. From Falcon 9 where a non-reusable Falcon 9 cost. Uh, Vulcan is going to be, again, close-ish to a expendable Falcon 9, but not reusable. Smart reuse comes far down the development path, uh, pathway. Asus comes far down the development pathway. Uh, the next gen launcher from Aerojet Rocketdyne? 
that doesn't that's not gonna happen. So it doesn't this doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> Angara is still getting its feet, but it's still a relatively expensive rocket, even with those Russian discounts. So old space is not has no credible public plans to compete right with SpaceX. But new space with Blue Origin, because they have pretty much infinite development funding, is on a pathway to compete. But they're trying within three years to get where SpaceX is now. And SpaceX, from what we've seen in three years, is going to be trying for Mars. And an order mounting cheaper at that. So it's going to be a very interesting time. This is getting like a little bit off topic, but I think the thing to understand with old space and how it operates is unless someone else is footing, unless someone is footing the bill, they're not going to make those independent uh, development efforts, right, and expend that kind of capital. Uh, something that's important to note is that Falcon Heavy was entirely uh, self-funded, right? So Falcon 9 received development funds from NASA, like a development contract specifically. Obviously, NASA has been a customer for Falcon 9 flights, but no one paid a development contract for Falcon Heavy. That was entirely developed by SpaceX to grow their capability because they want to reduce cost. They have goals of sending things to Mars, and that's what it's going to take. They need that kind of rocket. Um, now, there is an example of Boeing with the XS-1, a fully reusable first-stage booster space plane concept. Right? They're looking to make pretty significant progress within two years on that, uh, and that could be great for smaller satellites, something larger than CubeSats, uh, but that could be a great capability. But again, that's being funded by DARPA. They're spending a ton of money to Boeing, and Boeing is, sure, if you're going to pay for it, and we have a cost plus contract, we'll gladly send a ton of engineering time, ton of uh, knowledge at the problem, which is not the cheapest way for development, but we could see something out of Boeing for military use, specifically within two, three years, which is a great, uh, great capability to have. Yeah, it, it's a difference in business models and, I guess, company culture um, in approaching the, the issue. Mm -hmm. So I want to change the topic slightly. We've kind of looked at launch commercial and semi-public launch providers, Blue Ward in particular. There's one other rocket that... Falcon Heavy really needs to be compared against, and that's SLS. So SLS Block 1 uh, is launching, scheduled for the very end of 2019. Very likely that gets pushed back to sometime in 2020. Uh, block 1 has the new RS-25E engines, the new five-segment solid rocket boosters, uh, but it has the uh, borrowed stage from Delta IV, for a second stage and is using an incomplete version of Orion. It's not going to have the flight life support system. It's not going to be having uh, several other uh, features that would be needed for crew. And Block 1 is rated for 70 metric tons to lower orbit. Now, because it has a hydrogen upper stage, it's got a better uh, beyond low Earth orbit payload margins compared to Falcon Heavy. But Falcon Heavy has 64 metric tons expendable. So comparing expendable to expendable, they're very, very similar, especially when it goes to LEO. And while SLS has an evolution of Block 1, Block 1B, Block 2 within the next decade, once it starts flying a decade after, comparing these rockets, Falcon Heavy is 
just a monumental competitor. It's 80% cheaper. I think the low-end estimates are SLS about 500 million up to a billion per launch, with a launch rate of roughly one per year with maybe the ability to do two per year, while Falcon Heavy production rate is not important. Flight rate, they're planning on three to four, and they could surge even higher depending on how Block 5 comes. And for, Ca and for Falcon Heavy, reusable, $90 million listed. Obviously, government missions cost a little bit more. For expendable, anywhere from 160 to $200 million. And so you have a very competitive package compared to SLS, Block 1, that really puts into question a lot of future projects for SLS. So one, a couple things I want to talk about is we spent a whole episode talking about SLS and the Deep Space Gateway, which is looking to be the ISS replacement in the future. Uh, now that's scheduled to have four SLS Block 1B missions put up the modules into lunar orbit uh, with SLS missions or commercial missions resupplying it once in an operation. You could have something like Falcon Heavy, even in expendable mode, put roughly, not the same diameter modules, but roughly the same mass into lunar orbit, or you can have even more to make up for the, the deficit. But you could do Deep Space Gateway, hypothetically, if you could completely defund SLS, which is impossible, uh, and keep the current level of funding, which is also impossible, by purchasing Falcon Heavy flights and directing those funds immediately to Deep Space Gateway models, we could see Deep Space Gateway within three to four years. By 2020, a full Deep Space Gateway, maybe even more modules, plus there'd be money for more science experiments to go in those, more resupply, more crew rotations, etc. And we'd have a relatively bustling large space station around the moon within five years. We've we've discussed in the past whether we think, opinions-wise, NASA should be making it in in the running for producing their own launch vehicle rather than the payloads for all the other things like the flight rate, the cost, um, the fact that it's now flown once before. If if I were a payload designer, I would say, okay, I can. You know, I'll I'll try to make my thing a little less massive. I'll, I'll downsize a little, a few things, or opt for lighter materials here and there, because that so it's so significant. Um, yeah, the big thing that blows us out of the water is politics. Means that without SLS, the money for SLS is not going to be there, right? Right. I think another another big point, right, is when SpaceX was launching Falcon Heavy, John Innsbrucker after liftoff mentioned that. This was the first interplanetary mission to lift off from Path 9A since Apollo. I think that's really important. And I think the biggest benefit for Falcon Heavy, commercially with commercial satellites, not that much utility, but for planetary missions has a huge opportunity. We can launch probes to Martian orbit. So we have larger orbiters that have more sensors, more payload, longer orbit times. We can also do... Uh, more orbiter missions to outer or interplanetary bodies. We can avoid uh, gravity transfers, so we can have satellites doing the mission faster. It can even have uh, send a payload to do a Pluto flyby direct. So unlike New Horizons, that has to spend a lot of time doing those gravity assists, 
we can send repeat missions to Pluto much, much quicker. And also... Is it quicker, though? Yeah. Because Voyager uh, 1 was launched after Voyager 2, but because of the gravity assist that it got that 2 didn't, it beat 2 out of the solar system. Well, that's complicated because they got the perfect planetary alignment so they just could zip through all the planets and it was great. We don't get that all the time. But, uh, yeah, with Falcon Heavy you can launch larger, better, more scientific payloads to all these planetary bodies. With the canceled Red Dragon mission, if NASA had something similar, we could launch a very large, heavy lander on the surface of Mars. Maybe a larger rover or maybe... Uh, an aerial drone that lands and then takes off and flies around. Who knows? But it has that capability that expands the mission designer's envelope. Uh, so things we can do done faster, cheaper, or more capable. You can do a try to mix uh, a little bit of all three. But that's what a larger, cheaper launch capability gives you. And I think that's going to be the most important coming up. We could do direct missions for Europa Clipper uh, for much cheaper than SLS. Uh, and all of those other science missions. And I think that's a hugely valuable thing, but I think probably within the next six months, once it gets through the NASA uh, bureaucracy, we might see some uh, Falcon Heavy being selected for some of those missions. And up to three of those per year, uh, potentially. I want to talk about BFR news. We've got some sick news. At the press conference, obviously with Falcon Heavy and the Falcon family kind of reaching its peak, a lot of the reporters turned to asking about BFR, the next big development project for SpaceX. And we got some really interesting news. Some of it had been rumored for a bit. Some of it was new confirmation and just a kind of a new in point of view and insight onto how it's moving. Um, I think number one is with a, an estimated time frame for first flight. If we get lucky, we'll be able to do short hopper flights with the, the spaceship part of BFR. Um, maybe next year. By hopper tests, I mean kind of like we, we had the grasshopper program for Falcon 9, where we just add the rocket, take, take off and land in Texas, at our Texas test site. We'll either do that at our South Texas launch site near Brownsville, um, or do ship to ship. We're not sure yet whether ship to ship or Brownsville, but most likely it's going to do at our, happen at our Brownsville location, because we've got a lot of land with nobody around, and so if it blows up, it's cool. But by hopper test, I mean it'll, you know, go up, you know, several miles and then come down. Um, the ship will. The ship is capable of a single stage to orbit if you if we fully load the tanks. Um, so that we'll we'll do um, flights of increasing complexity. The second related piece of news is, as Drew mentioned before, one of the big issues with uh, interplanetary travel is that aerobraking with the aerodynamics and thermal dynamics has a crazy exponential curve on that. And so the heat shield technology is going to be one of the biggest challenges. We really want to test the heat shield material. Something like, you know, fly out, turn around, accelerate back real hard, and come in hot to test the heat shield. Because we want to have a highly reusable um, heat shield that's capable of absorbing the heat from uh, interplanetary entry velocities. Mars transfer velocities Earth tra moon transfer velocities, these are way harder than coming in from low Earth orbit. I mean, there's, there's some um, of the, the heating things that scale to the, the eighth power, which, which I didn't think realized there was anything that scales to eighth power. Um, but it turns out 
uh, reentry, certain elements of reentry heating uh, scale to the, at, at the eighth, to the eighth. Which I don't think has been done uh, in a practical way for many missions, and it sounds like a very curable thing to do. Uh, and so those would be some very exciting nail-biting tests with the chance of a spaceship blowing up into a million pieces as it slams into Earth's atmosphere. And the third was kind of a comment on the development pipeline, obviously with Falcon, Block 5, engineers moving over to VFS. There are a lot of uncertainties on this program, uh, but it is going to be our focus um, after, now that, now that we're almost done with, with Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy, we're going to uh, uh, level off, as I said, at Block 5 or Version 5, uh, so there won't be any more major versions of, of Falcon 9 or Falcon Heavy. Um, Dragon is also going to level off at Dragon version 2. Um, there might be like point releases, you know, 5.1 or Dragon 2.1 or something like that. But most of our engineering resources will be dedicated to uh, VFR. And, uh, and so I think that that will make things go quite quickly. The booster, I think, I don't want to get, you know, complacent, but I think we understand reusable boosters. Uh, reusable spaceships that can land propulsively, that's, that's harder. So we're starting with the hard part first. I don't know, I think it's conceivable that we do our first test flight in three or four years of a you know, full-up orbital test flight, including the booster. Oh, no, we'd go to Earth orbit first. Uh, but it would be capable of going to the moon shortly thereafter. It's designed to do that. But BFS is really Dragon and a bit of Falcon combined together with the, having the requirement to land on another planet at interplanetary speeds, which makes the whole thing even more complex. While scaling things up to the size of a BFR-sized booster is not a linear relationship. They think, okay, there's not going to be lots of big gotchas for that. All the big gotchas could be in the spaceship. Let's get that working first. It has the ability to single stage to orbit uh, without refueling, which is pretty incredible. And then we'll work on that booster for a launch in three to four years. Which is an insane timeline, but, you know, hopefully not. <laughs> I'm kind of desensitized to the timeline, both because of delays and also the fact that we were complaining about a five-year development time for a super heavy lift vehicle. Continue. <laughs> but BFR doesn't exist yet. They're, they're moving all of their work to focus on BFR. Um, at least that's what it seems like from a perspective. And it, it's hard to believe that that's something we'll see within a decade, and they're saying much sooner than that. Yeah, I Do you think we'll see anything within a decade. I think we'll see some things. I think we'll see some tests, but it won't be going to Mars. Based on SLS and based on Falcon Heavy, a decade seems about right. Now, you can make the argument that SpaceX has learned a lot and grown a lot, but Elon is not good with timelines, so. And this is, I think, going to be entirely new technology. This is so big, what BFR is planned to be. Um, SLS will be, once it launches, the most powerful vehicle ever, correct? Um, and then this is going to be larger, um, and it's different, different technology. Yeah, and also it's going to need brand new facilities in either very busy coastal LA 
or in Florida or in another part of the country. It's it's going to be more workers, more geography, more complexity, and they're still going to have to run until they get second stage reuse on Falcon 9. Not very likely. They're still going to have to run Falcon 9 second stage production indefinitely until BFR is ready to take over everything, which is not mm-hmm. going to be within 10 years. And BFR and all can't develop- take over everything because it won't be economical to launch that thing for small payloads, or rather it won't be economical to wait till you have a whole ton of satellites ready to go that could all go at once, but they've been sitting around for years and years and years trying to get all those together. And they won't all want to go to the same same orbit either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and each point of development that you bring up has a dollar sign associated with it, you know? So Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting because we've have a confirmed cost of one point five billion dollars for reusable Falcon Nine and Falcon Heavy. And the transition between Falcon Nine one point oh and two one point two, we don't really know, but it took about $300 million to get Falcon 9 1.0 flying. So it's close to $2 billion for a almost mature Falcon family, which is incredibly cheap relative to uh, SLS or anything uh, in old space. But it's still a lot of money, and they have to pay that off. Uh, and re- fortunately, the employees, the engineering team, is a fixed cost, right? And so... As long as revenue covers fixed costs, they can push those people into developing BFR, getting a little financial. And I don't, they, as long as they can cover their debt and pay the employees, they can continue development. That's very risky. Obviously, you want to minimize debt and not be in debt. Uh, but it's definitely a risky, risky process. And, you know, SpaceX is like, okay, potentially $10 billion. That's, a lot of money very in a relatively short time span for a company of that scale. It's not a Boeing or an IBM or, uh, you know, NASA, right? NASA spends about $19 billion a year across all of its centers and researchers. Yeah, risky is kind of the name of the game when you're talking SpaceX, so... Yeah, I think it's important to note that with Elon, his personality is to... You know, if he cares about an objective to go all in, right? He, you know, exited two startups with, you know, enough money to retire and live life relatively carefree. Uh, but then he took that money, invested every, pretty much every penny into new ventures uh, and got to a point where in 2008, he was almost completely broke. But both Tesla and SpaceX managed to eke out. And now his, you know, net worth is ballooned in size compared to where it was after paypal and you know his personality is okay i have these resources whether it's money or engineers or favors to pull from other people i want to achieve this goal of getting humans on mars i don't think anything's going to stop him from going all in so um one thing that people have been saying when i when i mentioned elon and his uh I don't know what the word is. It's not bravado, but how he's just, it just seems fearless and, and risky and um, tenacity and drive. His tenacity. Yeah. It, it's just um, his like, why not attitude. A lot of older people I've spoken with, namely my parents are kind of put off by that. Um, half thinking it's 
you know, a facade in order to get press and to, you know, rile people up to get attention and in order to make more money for his companies or just um, a severe recklessness that they find, you know, off-putting. But do you think that, I, I feel like that personality bleeds into the company company culture at um, Solar City, Tesla. So at Tesla and SpaceX, that personality has bled into the company culture. Um, but do you think it's like, is is that a calculated decision? You you seem pretty confident that that's like he doesn't really do it on purpose. Uh, having that risky attitude. That, well, I think he, um, he does kind of, definitely make calculated decisions, right? Uh, and you know, there's been very long articles that try to you know go into Elon Musk's thought process. Um, but what we have observed is he's got a set of goals he wants to achieve, and he analyzes ways to achieve them and ways to achieve them faster because Elon doesn't care of, oh, humans will get to Mars 10 years after I'm dead, 50 years after I'm dead. It's like, no, like it needs to happen in my lifetime or like my, my life wasn't worth and my goal didn't get achieved kind of thing. And, you know, going back to you know, your parents or other people, I don't think many people would invest every single penny of their net worth in their venture. You know, a lot of us are afraid of that risk. And I don't think a lot of wealthy people, millionaires, multimillionaires, so you say, I have $180 million to my name. That's my entire accumulated wealth. I'm going to invest every little bit of it to achieve my goals. And a lot of people will pull out before you get to that point, right? You could have pulled out a Tesla, pulled out a SpaceX, still had a few million left and let those dreams die. But he's like, no, like, I'm going to go achieve my goals or go down with the ship. And that's not something that a lot of people have. Uh, I don't think a very special kind of attitude. And, you know, he is one of the chief decision makers when it comes to vision for SpaceX. Obviously, Queen Shotwell does an amazing job in like operational uh, things at SpaceX as well. Do you think Bezos is all in? Bezos has too much money to care. <laughs> he's a hundred. He, he's the richest man went, in the world. If he went all in, it'd already be done. Yeah. Well, yeah, but Bezos just blows off like a percentage of his earnings of like stock growth every year on Blue Origin. He could fund like space. I don't think SpaceX has spent ten billion dollars in his entire life. SpaceX Blue Origin could drop ten billion every year until they have a Mars base. So that's kind of why I brought that up. So do you think the difference between uh, Blue Origin's development and SpaceX's development or future development will be Elon Musk and that X factor that he brings? I mean, we can get into like Elon Musk versus Bezos personality wise a little bit. Um, I think both of them have this attitude of rockets are cool, space is cool, we should be doing more. Uh, and I think if you look at rich people's space programs, which there are many, uh, Jeff Bezos is just the most well-funded, and Blue Origin is the most well-funded fun space program. R.I.P. Virgin Galactic. <laughs> I mean, that was uh, Richard Branson's fun space yeah. program. Like He yeah. wanted to win the X Prize, he gave him the money. 
And we've seen the development pipe timeline for Spaceship Two. They've had some accidents, setbacks, but they've dragged that out to a point where they're no longer relevant. Right? They wanted to be. I think they were the first private company to send a vehicle to space, rocket-powered plane to space, and they also did the weak reuse. But they haven't put anything into orbit. Um, they have programs that are working on timelines that have been stretched out. Uh, they used to be the name for commercial space in the early 2000s. And besides Virgin Orbit, which is a spin-off from Virgin Galactic, they're basically not sure. in contention. Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, like, th that's what I mean. So Elon, uh, you've already talked at length about what he brings to SpaceX. But if you take Elon away and you have infinite money from Jeff Bezos, is that enough for Blue Origin to hit the same marks in the same time frame? No. I think that the, the, the drive that is part of SpaceX's culture is what will keep them going. I don't think they necessarily need Musk anymore. But if there were a new CEO that was more conservative, I think they'd slow down and fall out. But just given the culture that's currently there, where they have the drive to get it done. Not saying that the origin doesn't, but we haven't seen that from them yet. And infinite money doesn't get you where you need to go. I think you're wrong in that they don't need Musk anymore. I think Elon Musk is what makes SpaceX SpaceX. And the fact that every time you think you made an achievement, every time you have your own personal Falcon Heavy fly, Elon's already talking about the next BFR. You know, it's just the continual, well, we already got sort of here. You're going to make it there. Finish what you're doing. And I've got bigger plans. I think that's kind of the um, the reason for their success. I definitely think that's definitely a, a really big asset for them. And I think that, you know, what SpaceX has is they have experience and they have the engineering workforce, right? They can devote engineering hours more so more easily than ULA or Blue Origin. To be fair, a large number of Blue Origin employees are ex-SpaceX employees. SpaceX does not have a great attrition rate. Uh, it's not terrible, but they don't have a great attrition rate. But what we've seen is a lot of employees that work at SpaceX, when they leave, they go out to Rocket Lab. We see them go to Blue Origin. We see them go to Vector and Planet Labs. We see a ton of new space enthusiastic young engineers kind of going through the forge of SpaceX and spreading out. Even ULA, you can look at some of the Glassdoor reports, a lot of somewhat jaded older employees uh, are talking about ULA's efforts to bring in young employees and a lot of the perks and the culture and the idea of moving fast to attract young talent to kind of rejuvenate the company, which is a conflict to the old timers. And I think company culture definitely goes in a big way. Size and experience is important. And obviously, infinite money is not, there's obviously, you know, infinite money does not mean instantly done. But Blue Origin could go much, much, if they want to spend $100 billion within two, three years, they could be incredibly fast, do an incredible amount of investment. They could truly, you know, catch up and beat SpaceX at that rate, right? That's not really going to happen, uh, but money does help 
a lot and lets you hire those engineers. And it's, but space, what I'm trying to say is that SpaceX has the momentum, they have the company culture, the people, and the vision to move rapidly across. Blue Origin has kind of adopted, trying to adopt the culture, adopt the vision. They have their own separate goals, which are not perfectly aligned, um, but they're very fundamentally different companies. Uh, but they have more in common with each other than any of the old space engineering companies that have been dominated for the past 50 years. All right, um, it's getting late. The audio quality is not the greatest, um, and our thoughts are kind of all over the place, but these, these are the conversations we would have had on or off the air, and I'm glad we can kind of get back to uh, Specscast's roots, if you will, I guess. Uh, thanks for the discussion. Have a good night, Drew. I know you're kind of... East Coast problems. We're across three different time zones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to having more conversations like this in the future. Yeah, it's a ton of fun. All right, guys. Thank thanks. Share your thoughts and ideas with us on Twitter at RITSpecs, facebook.com slash RITSpecs, or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. You can learn more about RIT space exploration and specscast at specs.rit.edu. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Find more at his website, thenelsonscott.com. <laughs>